This episode is brought to you by ShipBob, the global leader in e-commerce fulfillment with locations across North America, Europe, and the United Kingdom. ShipBob offers direct integration to merchants running on Shopify, Wix, BigCommerce, WooCommerce, Amazon, eBay, and Walmart. And they are the only 3PL that is Shopify Plus certified. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Nosto, the world's leading commerce experience platform. Nosto enables personalized shopping experiences without the need for IT resources or a long implementation process. Stay tuned for a special offer exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify and Klaviyo customers the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 57 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Pre Walia, the founder and CEO of Prima Donna. Prima Donna is a Silicon Valley-based technology startup building interactive hardware and software experiences for Gen Z. Their flagship product is the Nailbot, a patented at-home manicure system that prints custom nail art instantly on your nails. In this episode, Pri shares with us her entrepreneurial journey from scooping ice cream at Baskin Robbins, to working in politics, to working at startups focused on connected devices, to building a prototype of the Nailbot and beta testing it at house parties. She talks with us about how she pitched over a thousand investors to raise over $5 million, why the power of show and tell helped to propel her business, and how she learned to start believing in herself. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, please don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us a great review. We'd really appreciate it and we hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you, Pri, so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your amazing story in building Prima Donna. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lee. I appreciate it. So where are you from originally? Let's talk about, you know, young little you. Where were you from? What was childhood like? Did you have siblings? What did your parents do? Yeah, so I actually, I was born in Louisiana. And I grew up in Louisiana and in Mississippi. And uh, my dad immigrated to the U.S. for for college and for for higher education. Um, And that's how he ended up in Louisiana. And so I'm a Southern girl at my core, um, having really been kind of been born and raised in the South. Um, and in terms of me having siblings, so I come from a big family. I'm, I have three other siblings and I'm the youngest daughter, uh, and I have a younger brother as well. So my parents kind of had two sets of kids, like my older two sisters and then my brother and myself. And I would like to say I was probably like a girl's girl. I always had a ton of girlfriends. Um, I tended to, you know, I did my hair, I like nails done, but I was also really much like kind of a nerd at heart as well. Um, I was president of our speech and debate club, captain of our mock trial team. Um, so definitely more of like an order, if you will, and a storyteller, I guess. And I think I was just kind of a dynamic, creative kid um, that just was always really passionate about something, um, mm. whether that was, you know, law or speech and debate or politics. Um, when I got very excited about something, I just really, you know, put my whole heart and soul into it. And when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? 
When I was a kid, when I wanted to grow up, I really thought I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> Is that what you were dreaming of being when you were really young? Well, when I was really young. When I was in high school, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. Um, I'm, I'm uh, I was like, because I don't know many yeah. six-year-olds dying to be a lawyer right now. <laughs> yeah, you know, to be frank with you, I wanted to be my mom when I was young. Oh, that's I, cute. Why? Yeah. Because my mom is such a go-getter. My mom was a people person. Um, we actually, you asked a little bit about my parents. Um, my dad's an electrical engineer, very, very sharp, um, very methodical, actually quite quiet as well. Mm -hmm. And my mom, in some ways, is the polar opposite, so they're a good match. She's extremely outgoing. She's pretty aggressive. Um <laughs> She's actually used to run a lot of small businesses. So, you know, we owned a number of Baskin Robbins. We owned a donut shop. We owned a jewelry store. And so we had a number of small businesses as I was growing up. My parents, in some ways, were natural entrepreneurs. Mm. Um, and my mom would run these shops. And when I was younger, when I was, you know, in New Orleans, I was her mini helper. So I was helping her scoop ice cream. And oh my gosh, you were scooping mint chocolate chip ice cream at Baskin Robbins. And I was probably in line waiting. No, not, I'm not from the <laughs> South, but in Delaware, I was in that line. Well, I mean, who doesn't love Baskin Robbins, right? It's like or mint chocolate chip ice cream. Exactly. It's got to be green. It's got to be green. Yeah. Mint chocolate chip ice cream is very good. Um, but yeah, I think that kind of experience, like she... She just really, you know, she came to the U.S. Um, she she had married my father, and for her, really opening up her own business was this kind of vehicle for for opportunity. And I was really inspired by that. Um, and I think I kind of took the combination of my dad's very methodical approach to to life and his career, along with my mom's entrepreneurial spirit with starting Prima Donna. That's awesome. So it sounds like you got a little bit of that entrepreneurial bug early on scooping ice cream for your, for Baskin Robbins, your mom's I shop. Th I, th I think so. My mom's name is Pinky and they used to call me like junior Pinky. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, like I, I think my, my first job, you know, when I was little was going to the store with my mom and closing up and she would work really hard. We closed the store at like 10, 11 o'clock at night. I do my homework in the back. Mm. Um, and yeah, but I, you know, I think a lot of those lessons uh, of like starting a business, I, I learned from my parents. That's awesome. So you kind of started that way and then you hit 15, 16, and we're thinking maybe I want to be a lawyer. Where'd that come from? Yeah, I told her sisters and I think, I think you, there is something about birth order that really impacts, I think your personality and like the type of risk that you take on. Uh, I think the eldest are, especially frankly in our family, are kind of like held to a different standard. And by the time you get to like the third daughter in our family, it was like, well, what's she going to do? Um, and so during school, I was a really good writer. Um, and it's something that I kind of invested heavily in. Um, it's where I found my creative outlet. And then I learned I was actually quite good at speech and debate, um, whether it was original oratory or more traditional Lincoln Douglas. Um, and that kind of led me down this path of, you know, pursuing law and then eventually thinking of pursuing law and then heading our mock trial team. And so I think, you know, I just I really had a couple of teachers that saw a little bit of spark in me in this area and push me to do these things. And I think when you're younger, you're just willing to experiment in a lot of different areas. And for mm -hmm. me mock trial, speech and debate um, for those. That's awesome. And, and my sister was also, my sister actually is a lawyer um, and she she's a quite a bit older than me. So I, I was kind of trying to follow in her footsteps as well. Oh, admiring big sis and trying to be like her. So what ended up happening? So you went to college. How was college? Yeah. What did you study? Well, so actually during, um, when I was in high school, I actually interned for a law firm. And then I actually also interned for the Mississippi Secretary of State's office. Um, I was super into politics. Um, also from my, you know, my, my oldest sister was very much into, um, into political science and American politics and kind of following her footsteps a little bit. Um, and uh, when I went to college, I was kind of undeclared. I was in College of Arts and Sciences at Northwestern. Um, and then I I actually ended up going down this path and I studied history and gender studies. I was always a writer. And so I really loved really diving into American political history. And then to be very frank with you, like, you know, causes that impact women and girls 
have been very near and dear to my heart for a long time. And so for me, studying gender studies is kind of like a natural fit. Um, but that's what I that's what I ended up majoring in and concentrating in. I really think college taught me how to think uh, and how to construct arguments. Um, and in some ways to tell a story about those arguments, which actually leads us down the path to entrepreneurship in a non-traditional way. Um, but that's what I did. And even during the summers in college, um, during one of the summers of college, I interned for a presidential race in DC. Uh, and then I also interned for the law and justice unit at ABC News. So I had you know, nothing it sounds like to do with startups and tech and nails and beauty. Um, a little bit more so in law and storytelling um, and political campaigns. So that's kind of where, where my path was in college. So I think it's really interesting. You said you learned how to construct an argument. Um, what advice would you have, especially if that links to entrepreneurship? What do you mean by that? And what advice would you have for constructing a proper argument? Yeah, it's really about having a point of view, right? It's having a point of view on whether it's a cause, whether it's of how the market is going to shift, a technology trend, and why you are, are really the best person to make the case for that argument, right? Your history, the team that you've brought together. Even when I was in high school doing these original oratories or doing extemporaneous speaking, you know, you have three minutes to talk about a subject and to defend it. Even if you don't actually fully believe in it, you have to convince other people that you believe in it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's very similar to creating the narrative and the story of why your company or your product is disruptive and transformative and part of this bigger vision uh, and putting the kind of tracing those steps for other people to follow uh, and join you. And so like, I, I learned a lot in you. Yeah, invest in you. I mean, you're. Yeah. I think as a CEO, you're always trying to frankly find money or find people to work with you, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, you're always, always selling. selling. <laughs> you're always selling. And in politics, you are always selling. And in these, you know, in mock trial, in speech and debate, I was always selling. Just how I was selling was, you know, I didn't necessarily have slides. I was using my words. Um, I didn't have financials necessarily to share, but it was to what we were just talking about, constructing an argument and sharing that in the form of a story. So you went to school, you got your degree. Um, I think you also got an MBA. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So kind of, I'll, I'll move a little bit faster. So actually I got my degree from Northwestern. Um, didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. I think a lot of folks that graduate college, we learn how to think, how to write, how to act with peers, have some internships under our belts. What are we really going to do with that? Um, I actually was very, very passionate about political change and American politics and progressive causes. So I worked for Emily's List, um, a program of theirs called Campaign Corps at the time. They trained a number of college graduates and they placed them on political campaigns all across the country. So you pack up your stuff and they train you for two weeks in DC and you had no idea where you're going to be sent. They bought your ticket for you as well. And so I was placed in Arizona on a congressional race and it was a fantastic experience. I lived there for about four and a half, five months. Um, we didn't win the race. So I learned a lot about failure. My first job out of college. Nice. Um, where I, yeah, I had packed up my bags, was in Arizona, working my heart out in this congressional race. And, um, I learned a lot of lessons. I learned how to fundraise. I learned a lot about how to get out the vote and field campaigns and both online and offline, like grassroots mobilization. And those are really important lessons for like any marketing job, any future political jobs to start a startup. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but once again, I was out of a job at the end of it. Um, the great thing about political campaigns Number one, you can change the course of history. Number two, there's always likely an end date, right? Like it's not yeah. going forever. There's election day and you kind of know if you won or lost. Um, and then there's a transition, right? Just like with, with, with technology companies, you know, as you raise more capital, you're in a different stage of the company. And very similarly with political campaigns, you win the primary, you go to the general, you win the general, you govern, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so you can see that natural transition and the same happens um, I think as you raise capital and build your start, your startups. So after that, move fast forward, moved to DC. I worked for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, did a lot of West Coast finance, raised a lot of capital actually out of Silicon Valley, out of LA. Um, really started to understand how 
political campaigns and kind of the American political structure really operated. And the DNC, the DCCC, the DSCC, um, thought I was going to stay in DC for a while. I got an opportunity to work on a race in Silicon Valley. Um, someone was running for governor on the primary side. I, I had 24 hours to decide, I believe, and like seven to 10 days to move. And I did it. Jeez, they give you 24 hours to decide? Yeah, I mean, like in terms of like, you know, they needed to move quickly on a job. On uh, Political campaigns move very quickly. Mm -hmm. Maybe they gave me closer to 72 hours, but I needed <laughs> to make a very quick decision right. uh, on like kind of my life trajectory. And I, mm -hmm. was, I was young, I was like 23 at the time. So I moved out to the Bay Area. And that really, I think everyone's trying to find a way to come out at that time to come out to the Valley, right? And that was how I came out. I didn't come out and move to Silicon Valley to start my company, Prima Donna. I didn't come out for another startup. I actually came out because of politics. I came out here and I worked for a politician and it really shaped the next, you know, 10 to 15 years of my life, to be very frank with you. Mm -hmm. um, I really caught the bug out here. I learned I was, I'm really good at starting things from ground up, hence working in all these political campaigns. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm really, when I believe in someone or something or a vision of the future, I put my heart and soul in it. I don't need to start it. <laughs> that was kind of my thing. I was always kind of like one of the first 10 hires. Um, and so I really found that kind of intersection of my passion um, and what I was good at, which I think is sometimes hard to find. Um, yes. Didn't make a lot of money doing it, but I liked it. Uh, and so I've been working kind of in politics for, for the next couple of years. And I was at this intersection of, do I go to business school? Do I go to law school? Do I look and work at a startup, uh, kind of transition out of politics? Because I, I wanted something a little bit new. And I applied to business school. And, okay, for all of you out there that maybe already applied to business school, went to business school, or thinking about it, there's something you shouldn't do, which is apply round three, because it's really hard to do, and you kind of limit your options. But I, you know, didn't really know. And it's like, no, I'm going to apply round three. So I applied round three to, to business school. I didn't even know I was going to business school until like a month and a half before school started. What do you started. mean by that round three? You mean you, you got rejected twice and then you no, applied? Apparently they have like different rounds for some schools. So there's like a batch of like, it's called round one. There's certain dates. You like apply in like September, October, you find out in like January or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Round three is like, you can apply as late as like, you know, May and you find out like in June or July, if you got in. So they're really rounding out the class. So there's a lot fewer slots. You just don't know if you got in until much, much later. Um, longer waiting period. Yeah, way longer waiting period. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I, I got into business school and I went to B school and New Chicago was actually quite difficult for me. I didn't have as strong of a quant background, I think as my peers. So I really had to work in a lot of my classes. But for, for me, business school was really rounded out my skill set um, and made me just look at business in a different way. And it even made me look at my past jobs, my past jobs in politics in a different way. I think it really gave me a foundation um, to analyze a problem, a situation, even an argument, um, and really fill it with numbers, <laughs> right? Numbers also tell a story. My words tell a story, but numbers yeah. tell a story as well. Mm -hmm. And it surrounded me with people that were very, very different from me and different from me, even how I worked. Um, and I think it was the best decision I made at that point in my life um, to have gone to business school for two years. Between my first and second year of B school, I worked for an early stage hardware company. We did LED lighting and building automation back in Silicon Valley. So I moved back out to the Bay Area for that summer between my first and second year. And that's how I got into hardware. So you hear about all my passion for community building, for grassroots organization, for kind of being like on the ground, boots up. Um, and now, and I got my kind of that foundation at UChicago. And then hardware is really where it started between my first and second year of business school. And we manufacture in the U.S. and then also overseas. I was one of the, I was one of the early employees. I was kind of a Jill of many trades. They hired me to do like government affairs, but I didn't really know what that meant. I just needed a job. So I really just did everything I possibly could. I sold lights. I helped with product development. I fixed lights. Um, I helped our, C uh, we had a couple of different CEOs at different junctures of the company, help them with investor decks and their, their financial models. Um, kind of what you do when you want to learn everything about a business. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think that really gave me a foundation to, to understand how to build um, a smart hardware technology company from ground up. 
Um, and I joined them after I finished business school as well. So I moved back to the Bay Area. And I think for me, that experience really catapulted um, prima donna and Nailbot. And I can, I can get into that in a little bit. But, you know, there I was kind of in this unique place where I had a degree from University of Chicago and from business school, not really sure what I was going to do with that. Had this, you know, connected hardware startup experience, had a um, grassroots community building experience from working my days in politics, loved really building communities around girls and women from my gender studies minor, and was a natural entrepreneur having worked in a Baskin Robbins growing up. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> There's the recipe right there. Yeah. So how did nails get into this equation? Yeah, totally. It's like, okay, free, where are you going with this? Because <laughs> I've probably gone off on a tangent. Yeah. So nails and nail bot and prima donna. So after this one connected hardware startup, I started consulting with another building automation startup. I really thought I was going to stay in the building automation space. Um, to me, it was very fascinating. Um, it really was kind of the, in my opinion, one of the early verticals. Um, kind of to go, you know, from analog to digital. Um, whether you're looking at your your HVAC system, whether you're looking at lighting, it's 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 very, very to me, it was very interesting in terms of the, the market adoption too. Because when you're looking at the commercial space versus the consumer space, sometimes it's more, you know, fundamentally it was it it's a cost equation, right? It's who's installing the light versus who's, you know, who's benefiting from, um, from the energy savings. Um, there was really just an intricate kind of um, ecosystem around it. So I'm going off on a tangent, but so I started to see all these LED lights hit the market. They're actually meant to cure your finger now. Uh, I don't know if you've seen any of the LED dryers like in Walgreens or, or Target. You know what I'm talking about? They're like LED dryer kits. For your nails? Yep. I think so. I mean, do they have them at nail salons or is that a different type of... <laughs> Uh, they have UV light and they have LED dryers at nail salons. They also have at-home kits. Um, and a different use case for LEDs, right? Mm -hmm. It's for your fingernail. Yeah. But, you know, I like to say it was like kind of like the LED light that went off in my head, right? Mm. Because you're here I was trying to sell this kind of lighting fixture, if you will, um, and trying to sell a return on investment over the capital cost. And someone's got to install it. You know, it's it's, it's kind of an intricate system, yet... Frankly, consumers were willing to spend money to buy an, you know, a nail care system to cure your fingernail um, with polishes and primers, and um, for kind of between that sixty-nine dollar to over two hundred dollar price point, mm -hmm. it was a very unsophisticated use for for LED technology. But it was fascinating to kind of watch consumer behavior. So that was one aha moment. And I'd been on this summer vacation when I was in Europe trying to get a manicure, and it was very. It was expensive. It was <laughs> hard to get an appointment. And I started connecting a lot of different dots. Um, so I wouldn't say, Lee, there was a one aha moment where I was like, I'm going to build this device to decorate my. We'll get right back to our show. But first, a word from our sponsors. ShipBob is a tech-enabled 3PL that offers simple, fast, and affordable fulfillment. Unlike most 3PLs that lack sophisticated intuitive tools and use outdated methods, ShipBob's technology is modern, intelligent, and designed to give you full transparency over your backend operations. Fulfillment is incredibly time-intensive, so just hand it over to the best of the best. With a network of fulfillment centers across the globe with new locations continuously underway, ShipBob lets you split inventory across locations to reduce shipping costs and transit times. Get your products picked, packed, and shipped, and earn $500 in free shipping credits by going to shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. That's shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. Nasto enables e-commerce brands to deliver personalized digital shopping experiences at every touchpoint across every device. Designed for ease of use, Nasto empowers brands to build, launch, and optimize one-to-one omni-channel marketing campaigns and digital experiences without the need for dedicated IT resources or a lengthy implementation process. Leading brands in over 100 countries use Nasto to grow their business and delight their customers. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can take advantage of an exclusive 10% discount off your first six months. 
Learn more or request a demo by going to nosto.com slash stairway to CEO. That's N-O-S-T-O dot com slash stairway to CEO. Malomo is on a mission to help brands create lasting relationships with their customers. Did you know that the average customer tracks their shipments around four to five times per order? That's a lot. Why not use that time with excited customers to drive sales and build your brand with a tool like Malomo? With Malomo, you can use branded shipment emails and order tracking pages to drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content, all while cutting support tickets by 50%, simply by being proactive and managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash stairway to CEO. That's gomalomo, G-O-M-A-L, omo.com slash steroid CEO. And I'm going to start prima donna. I would say I started to see all, you know, as you look back, all of these interesting moments came together for me. Mm -hmm. And so I was actually out of the job to be very frank with you. I, the LED lighting company, I had wanted to move on. I've been consulting with a couple of other uh, entities on like building automation side. And I was like, all right, I you know, have this idea for potentially building devices to decorate your nails, all powered by your smartphone, and then building a bigger company around it. And I had this idea and I was ideating off of it. And I was also applying for other jobs, aka, as my mom likes to call it, can can I use my degree in a, in a clever way? And no one was hiring me, Lee. Like I was applying to Google, I was applying to Facebook, I was applying to Salesforce. And so I was actually getting a little bit, of, I was getting further and further and further with Nailbot. And yeah, what I would call these nail printing devices that I was building, I was like, I called it Nailbot. And I was like, this is going to be Nailbot. This is going to be a thing. And I was like, you know what? I'm making more traction here. So I made a calculated decision. And I said, you know what? I'm not married. I don't have kids. I only am taking care of myself. I am going to go for this. And I'm going to build a bigger company around Nailbot. It's going to be called Prima Donna. Like, eh, URL's not taken. I'll take that. And I was kind of off to the races. So that's kind of how, you know, I I used the, I basically looked at the skill set that I had and said, I'm going to kind of leverage everything that I know and start this company and build it with and for the next generation of young women, and especially for Gen Z. And we are going to build very fun, smart experiences for them, starting with nail and maybe even, you know, extend into other categories as well. And having worked in lighting and in building automation, which to be honest, doesn't sound particularly sexy, but I liked it. Um, it's very hard to build brands around lighting fixtures. You know, you see GE, you see Philips, you see a lot of existing players. I think Nest is a little bit of an anomaly. Um, but in beauty and fashion and lifestyles and accessories, it's expected to build a larger, you know, aspirational brand around mm -hmm. product experiences. And so that vision kind of started and just kept going. So when was that moment when you had the vision? Because I understand that all of these dots kind of accumulatively happened over time, but yeah. I'm sure there was a moment when it all kind of came together and you're like, Oh, this is really, I think this is what I want to do. This is, this is the yeah, product. So I, yeah. So I, I like to say when we're going to be an eight year overnight success story, <laughs> um, I incorporated the company in 2013 in my apartment in stealth with no money. Um, and I filed our first provisional patent in like August of 2013. So yeah, I would say if you, if you are looking back at the dots, uh, as to, when pre started doing something, um, it was then. And, you know, what was that first thing that you did? I mean, were you building this in your apartment or, you know, what did you do to kind of validate or test this idea? Yeah. So definitely doing this in my apartment, working on different prototypes, really build, trying to building out early team members to help me build different MVP prototypes um, to even see what was feasible, really understanding the market opportunity as well. You know, mm -hmm. what were we building? What was achievable at the, at the, at the price point? Where was it? Where could the technology go? Um, so that's what I was doing in 2013, 2014. Didn't really raise any outside capital. We got into an accelerator in 20, late 2014, early 2015. And we were, we were in stealth. It was called the Hacks Hardware Accelerator. And I actually moved to Shenzhen, China. And that really 
Yeah. So if you really want to ask me, you know, how, how we got something built <laughs> even to test out, um, I would say that experience was really um, an accelerant, mm-hmm. right? For me, before we left, we had some early, early iterations of prototypes that we were testing with, you know, nail parties with preteen and teen young women. We would take a video camera around, watch them use the product. One thing that I really learned was that people will tell you one thing, but then they'll use your product very differently. And so having actual footage of people using your product, especially if you have like hardware, yeah, I think is very, very powerful as you build. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when you're not in the room and they're talking about the product, about what works and doesn't work, it's also pretty interesting. Um, so we did a lot of these nail parties in stealth, um, even before we went to China. And then clearly, even when we came back from the Hacks Hardware Accelerator, um, we had a more, a little bit more of an advanced MVP prototype that we used to test. Um, and to be very frank, I had raised very, very, very little capital. I think I'd raised like, you know money from some sorority sisters and my own sister uh, and and a little bit from hacks but we were we were pretty bare bones for a hardware company and to be honest with you like I didn't know if we were gonna make it mm-hmm. you know like it's like you can only live on ramen for so long because right. uh, by that, then you were about two years in of ramen noodles right you're 2013 yeah. to 2015 getting into the accelerator you were already two years in of just even just with a prototype, not even at market, no revenue. You're just trying to test out, you know, and get feedback from beta testers, right? Yeah. I mean, it was really like, I mean, I call it like our, our alpha, alpha, alpha testers, right? right. Uh, when you, when you look back, you know, I would say I just have this fundamental belief that like, when you have time, you don't have money. And when you have money, you do not have time. And that's kind of a the reality of of building something. And I also believe that my lessons in politics really, really came into play here, which is sometimes your venture isn't meant for that time. And if you can just keep going, like the there's gonna be a moment when your message, when the product is ready, when everything really resonates. And you know, if you can keep going until that moment, you're going to be that startup. Um, when I look at a lot of different other politicians that I've worked for or that I've admired or that I've followed, you know, in American political history, oftentimes it's like their second or third try at the same type of venture in which they actually finally win, right? Um, and I, I use a lot of those lessons to keep me going, which was, is the market timing right? Is the technology right? Am I learning as an entrepreneur? I learned a lot about myself in those early years. Um, and I also had side gigs to help me pay the bills, frankly, right? Um, what did you so, learn about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I learned, I so some of the strengths, I'll start with the strengths. I learned how much grit I have. I appreciate entrepreneurs that can keep going even when they're pushed down, that can keep going in the face of rejection. And I think I was extremely defensive in the early days, frankly, when people would criticize the idea or wouldn't invest in me or wanted more traction or more progress. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I kind of cringed, to be honest with you, Lee, um, a little bit. (laughs) Cringed then or looking back, you're cringing now. Looking back, I cringe because I I look back and hug that person and say, you are going to get through this. It's not personal. Get over it. Um, yeah. It's hard not to take it personal, though, especially if you're by yourself, solo founder, you're getting all of this, you know, and you're just trying to defend yourself, your product, everything you're working so hard for. And it's um, sometimes it's not so nice out there, the feedback or the c- comments. Yeah, but you know what? If you can take it and still have a smile on your face like the next day, mm-hmm. you don't get bitter. No one wants to invest in a bitter entrepreneur, right? Right. That doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think I think you have to you have to really believe in yourself, and I think I learned how to believe in myself. And the thing, so I, I really started to appreciate those qualities about myself. Um, I'd say the areas where I I really learned where some of my weaknesses were. Um, I had a tendency to overreact on some things, and I think it's I think as if you're a young entrepreneur, if you're a first time entrepreneur. Sometimes you think it's like the end all be all if something bad happens, right? Like, oh, I got, you know, no, it's, it's not. Um, and I have had to learn, I have a lot of passion. You can hear it in my voice. You can hear it, you know, as I talk about my story, 
but I've had to learn how to kind of manage that passion too, right? Because it, it can be overwhelming. Um, the passion has clearly kept me going all these years, but I've also had to really learn how to control it uh, to where it is productive. What do you uh, mean manage that passion? What kind of advice would you give for others that are super passionate like you? Yeah, you can't burn out on that passion, right? Um, I say, I, I say the one thing that I have learned for me over these years is that my passion has become my purpose. And I think sometimes your hobby can become your passion, which is fantastic, right? Uh, but you can get burned out just being passionate all the time. And you can be passionate about a lot of things, but are you willing to, to make the sacrifice? Are you willing to put in the years? Are you willing to kind of have all those doors shut in your face and still keep knocking on them to show them progress in six months, right? Exactly. Right. Um, and then for me, I, I have learned, you know, we kind of get, we can move on to kind of where we are now, but I have learned that, you know, I believe that Prima Donna is that company and is that, you know, that entity that is going to, to really power creative expression through really fun, interactive hardware and software experiences that are really going to power this audience of Gen Z young women. Um, and I have learned that like, I am just a vehicle for that. And I think that's my place in, in this bigger, in this company. I think I'm the right inventor for the nail bot, this kind of like crazy fun device that I think can, can do so much. And I'm just, I think I'm just like a conduit. I'm just a vehicle to get that there. Uh, and my, my purpose also has really evolved too. I'm on the board of a nonprofit called Maker Girl. We teach girls 3D printing and STEM modules. Um, and these young women have taught me so much about myself and have made me better. Um, and I'm just so privileged to like have been a part of that. We've done a lot of nail bot for maker girl sessions. A lot of the maker girls end up working for prima Donna. Um, so yeah, I think I've become a better leader from this experience. My passion has definitely become my purpose. And the I've difference between your leadership before and your leadership now, like what are some of those things that have changed? Yeah. I mean, I say that I, I've been trying not to use the word I too much because I do think it's about we and us. And even though my name is kind of cleverly in the company, it's actually not about me, right? You know, hopefully folks understand that like it really is about that next generation um, that identifies makers as hackers, as artists, as kind of original first women. Um, but yeah, so I'd say my leadership style has definitely changed in the sense that I think when you're starting off and you're just you, it's easy to think that everything is about you and to take it personally. But I think I've really learned that it's not about me. It's about making, it's really about powering other people. And I think, you know, it's going from and being an individual contributor to really leading. And it's actually kind of a journey because in the early days, if you've raised no money, you're doing everything. So how exactly are you supposed to empower other people, right? Mm -hmm. um, if like you're, you know, the, the, the sole person, but as you really build your team, in some ways it's kind of powerful if you've done that job before, because you, you really want to enable the folks that you've, hired to to be better versions of themselves right what do they need to be even more successful how can i power them and i think i just really changed my mentality as we've been able to hire and move forward and it's not about pre right it's about it's about the bigger company and vision and mission um and so i think i've become a better leader in that way and um yeah i i, I yeah so hopefully that helps answer your question i think i'm a little more patient um i think i was far less I was far more impatient in the beginning, but now having worked on this for so many years, you get more patient. Yeah. You just realize maybe things take a little longer than totally. <laughs> so yeah. what's, what's one of the biggest challenges that you've overcome in building your business? Yeah. I mean, I actually think it's having to have, having to have raised capital, right? Yeah. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about fundraising. You guys raised, you've raised $5.6 million so far. Congratulations. Tell us about how that went. Yeah. And so what you heard the early part, thank you so much for, for saying that I, I still view, so I view capital as a means, you know, not the end, right? Yeah. It's just the beginning. Um, it's like the, yeah. you know, starting line. Everyone thinks it's the finish line. Like, Oh, congrats. Here you go. No, but it's actually now the work actually starts. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I think if we, I could have bootstrapped this company entirely, I would have done so. Um, you know, hardware is just capital intensive and I, I didn't have the capital to do that. I had the time, right? So I think a lot of times people don't realize that your time is also a huge capital asset. Mm -hmm. So if you can donate your time to something for two, three years, that's that's also amazing. Um, 
Yeah. So in terms of how fundraising went, I, I mentioned we raised very little capital before 2015, 2016, even really 2017, really was going on fumes, doing very small experiments, doing you know slight iterations on our build, really trying to, to find other angel investors. I would say our big break came in like early 2018. We raised a very, very small, modest round. Um, and it really helped us go from our MVP prototype, which we were testing on lots of different consumers, um, to go through our full, what we call NPI process. And since, candidly, over the past you know, two and a half, three years, we have really executed in milestones um, behind the scenes. So we have eight issued patents, um, eight that are pending. We have raised 5.6 million in overall seed funding. Actually, about half of that we've raised during the pandemic, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, so you can see the trajectory of like, you know, things can shift very quickly when you're working on something. Um, and where that capital is really going is funding tooling and funding uh, that early pilot production. So we're very excited about the next couple of months for Prima Donna. Over the summer, you're going to see those next batch of nail bots hit the fields, and then fall will be very heavy with production. Um, and our overall seed raise, it was led by Halogen Ventures. I'd say Halogen was the first big believer in Prima Donna. It's led by Jesse Draper. It's very much a female-focused consumer fund. Mm -hmm. And I think for any entrepreneur, like you're always searching for, you, you're going to have a ton of different angel investors that believe in you when you raise like a larger venture round. But I'd say you're looking for that first bigger check. And right. for me, that was that. That was someone putting down money and saying, I believe in you that could see beyond you know, the hot glue gun pieces of like a 3D printed nail bot um, and say like, I can see what that is going to be. And I believe in you and I believe it's going to be something. And I had actually pitched Halogen, I don't know, maybe seven or eight times before they actually invested. That's uh, really interesting. And then that's important to say. I mean, I think that a lot of times, you know, people think that you just, it's one and done. You pitch once then you get a check, boom, you fundraise. <laughs> so can you walk through your experience? Yeah. Yeah, for the, those dream stories of someone pitches 10 funds, three of them invest, the round is oversubscribed, congratulations. That's amazing. You now have way more time to work on your product. Um, and that's for, pretty unusual. That's, I mean, that's a, the majority of the stories that we hear in the press, but that's actually the minority of what actually happens in fundraising across all the types of different startups and fund founders trying to raise money out there. Yeah, well, you're totally spot on. For us... That's not how it worked. I, I pitched over a thousand people today, yeah. right? Over a thousand investors, both angels, bigger funds, smaller funds. Um, and we really kind of built a network of investors. I have a number of individual angel investors that have given me between 10K to 100K type checks. Um, you know, Helen Greiner, she invented the Roomba. She was, um, she was a founder of iRobot. Charlie Wang, he co-founded Guitar Hero. The Spanx by Sarah Blakely Fund um, is also an investor. Um, and a lot of these folks actually built their companies with very little or no outside capital. And so I really leveraged a lot of their thinking and their expertise and advice and how if we didn't raise any more equity due to capital, could I still get this product to market? So I had almost two dual strategies, which was number one, Okay, I may not raise a full $5 million over, you know, and if I have to raise it over time, I could only meet certain tranches. So what can I do to get this product further ahead, which is what I would really advise a lot of entrepreneurs. If you're running into a roadblock and you can't raise the overall amount you think it's going to take to get through a big, big milestone, break it up into smaller milestones. So for us, we broke it up into smaller engineering builds with like market testing with it. Um, and we were very clear, okay, if we raised 500K, it would fund X, Y, and Z. If we've raised... Two million, two million dollars. It would, it would, you know, we would reach this milestone. So we had to be very calculated with the cash that we've raised, mm -hmm. uh, which I think served us well for being capital efficient um, and making sure that we didn't kind of, we didn't die, right? Right. Like, or that you didn't get burned out, or could actually operate the business. I think the trouble or the challenge with kind of fundraising that way is that you know, you're really kind of constantly fundraising, right? Or did you have, I mean, what was your runway looking like when you kind of did this in yeah. tranches? Yeah, I mean, in a, in a good way, I've, having worked in, in politics before, we're we're always fundraising in politics. <laughs> um, so in my early career, you know, some people hate raising money. Um, it's a sales job. 
right? Like you're in sales. And um, I was, these angel checks, I was very, it's more intuitive to me because that's kind of how I've raised capital for other entrepreneurs, pardon I call them entrepreneurs. Politicians are entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, for other politicians, is I did them at house parties, at other events, you know, from high net worth individuals, um, from folks that really believed in their vision. And so I, I do think a little bit of my background in politics has helped with the fundraising. So were you um, hosting house parties to uh, fundraise for your startup? Uh, so actually, I, do, I definitely do crash parties. So some of my existing angels, like if they have a party, I will come with a nail bot. Um, they, other folks don't always know that, you know, free is basically doing a pitch. Um, but I definitely did. Um, we did a lot of the house parties that we did were a lot of nail type parties for beta testers or other investors. So yes, to answer your question, yes, I combined it with beta testing meets investment. And um, for any of my existing investors, when I wanted them to introduce me to new people, if they were having a dinner party or having the event, I would show up, um, which has been good. Um, and yeah, I'd say, you know, other key things for us is we have a really interesting mix of investors. So I think oftentimes you can be pigeonholed into thinking only hardware investors are going to invest in Prima Donna mm-hmm. and Mailbot. But, you know, while we do have a, a couple of really awesome robotics and hardware type investors like SOSV, we actually have a lot of other female funds like Halogen Ventures, um, but we also have funds that really specialize in mobile and network effects because the Nailbot prints really fun custom art and eventually polish on your nails. But especially when you're talking about art and designs, we're really building a mobile marketplace that exists beyond even nail art. When you think about tattoo and henna, and so the mobile and the network effects are, are really key to our vision and and frankly, our platform, right? Um, and so version one ventures really specializes in mobile and network effects. I think we're one of their only hardware investments. Um, and so we were able to pick up investors that really like different aspects of the business as we were building it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that kind of tranche style approach that we had to endure, um, but also that we conquered helped us get a, a pretty broad group of investors that wasn't just like in only in hardware, only in consumer. Uh, it made us, I think, actually a more holistic, like much better company because of it. And so when you were pitching over a thousand investors, obviously that's a lot of no's, a lot of rejection that I'm sure that you had to overcome. Um, what were some of the things that they were saying when they said no and why were they saying no? And then how did you kind of get back up on the ground and, and keep going? Yeah. So I oftentimes think when folks say no, is it a not now? Is it timing on their end? They invest in another beauty type company. Are they on their second fund? I, I think of it a lot. A lot of it has to do, people don't realize this. And I realize this more now. This is why when I look back you know, at my younger self, when I started this company, I, I wish I reacted in different ways. But a lot of it actually has nothing to do with you as an investor. A lot of times it's a lot to do with like where they are in their fund and what they're looking at. And if they've even been introduced to the category, mm-hmm. right? Have they looked at something in nail? Have they looked at something in creative expression? Do they like this space? Were they burned by consumer hardware recently, right? Right. So I think that's one aspect of the equation. And also, are you talking to the right associate principal partner, right? Is that a person that you can really jive with? Do they believe in you? Um, so I think that's one aspect of it. On my end, as I've kind of learned I think there is this element of you kind of have to love me, right? Like there is this element of like, you really have to believe in the entrepreneur. Um, And some folks, so it's hard for people to to take it in. Like they just may not believe in you, right? Right. Having worked in politics, I'm okay because, you know, know, sometimes people are going to vote for you and sometimes people aren't going to vote for you or the candidate they're working for. And that's okay. Maybe they're not going to vote for you in the primary. They may vote for you in the general. Right. Um, And so I think thinking about things in a certain context, which is maybe it's they don't believe that I'm the right person, also based on their set of experiences. And just, you know, that is one reason. The other reason is they don't believe the market opportunity is big enough. I hear that a lot from a lot of other entrepreneurs. I'm not sure if you kind of have that experience with folks on your show, Lee. Market size is a huge, huge deal for funds, VCs in general. I mean, that's like one of the number one things they look for. Yeah. And I would say folks, I think it's how you define your market. So I think in the early days, I looked at the market as a little bit too small. Um, The market was more, oh, I'm only talking about the nail market, or I'm only talking about the nail art market, or I'm only Mm -hmm. talking about the Gen Z market. 
But our mission is to really power creativity. And we think the creativity market is actually a $135 billion market that spans multiple categories. Um, and See, we that's, really- that's, that is exactly what I'm talking about. And this is that switch that you just did from I'm doing a nail company to much, much bigger, that makes you almost sound crazy, that people probably listening are like, what? What's the creativity market, right? That is exactly what investors need to hear. Because if they, if you're too hyper-focused on this like very kind of niche market, they're going to say it's too small. I don't know enough about it. I don't know, blah, blah, blah. But when you can blow up your vision that big and really have that, that is exactly what type of founders that investors want to back, right? These big thinking, crazy people that want to take over the world, but not just in a tiny way, in a very big, you know, monumental way. So I appreciate you saying that. Um, That's a really big lesson, I think, for founders to, to realize very early on when they're pitching. I wish I had realized it much, much earlier. <laughs> if I, if I would have saved you a lot of no's. <laughs> it, it maybe would have saved me a lot of no's, but I also think like the market now, I mean, Gen Z is a, they are, they are creators. They are natural digital creators. And so you're seeing this, like this new age, like creative economy um, mm-hmm. also emerging. And so I think it's also timing, right? Um, but on your point on the market, you know, to me, it also opened up as we were building more and I saw, oh, you know, I, it's all about prima donna. The reason that company isn't named Nailbot was because we have a bigger vision and our vision is to really, how do we delight and, you know, and really make our customer so joyful um, with really unique experiences. And nail is really the gateway to the body. That's how I, how I look at it. Mm. Uh, and I think with that, I was able to really recruit other investors with that to your point, with that bigger thinking um, and and showing them. And so, you know, we were even able to get the Amazon Alexa fund um, in our last round. So really pumped about it because we can do some very clever things with voice automation uh, with our experience as well. So I, you know, I will say I'm really pumped about the, the journey and the investors that we've gotten on board. I view them as frankly, like teammates um, to propel us. It's mm-hmm. great that they're giving us capital, but we also need expertise. We need them to help us recruit. Um, right. Nailbot out there. That idea, that that switch to that bigger vision, where did that come from? What sparked that? Did some investors say you have to think bigger? Did a mentor tell you this isn't, you know, you need to maybe think of it this way? Or did you wake up one day and start having a different vision for something bigger? Like what really kind of triggered that change in mindset of your vision? Yeah, I would actually say it was probably maybe like two years ago when people really believed that Nailbot was coming, right? Mm-hmm. It was, who, who is Prima Donna? Tell me more about this. What is the next product category you're going to build? I still am a believer. It's kind of like twofold. When you're pitching angel investors, frankly, and you're pitching folks that have never raised outside capital, and they want to know that you're going to keep going no matter what, it's great to pitch a big vision, but what can you solve right now? What is that first product? What is your wedge into the market? And Nailbot is that wedge into the market, right? But how can you make it bigger? And I think as I was talking to bigger funds, if that makes sense, I was really able to show the bigger story because we had things that were functional. We were like getting Nailbot to market. So I'd say that shift happened as I was pitching larger funds and had already recruited some of the angels because you need some of those early checks Mm -hmm. to get going, right? Um, And in some ways, I'm very glad you know, hindsight's 2020, I'm very glad that we we were able to do that shift when we did, because I think if we had done it earlier, I'm not sure if we would have been as capital efficient. I'm not sure if we would have made the same product decisions. Um, I, I think there is a little bit of a power, like, I think creativity can really thrive with constraint, actually. Um, and I think we were able to do that. That's awesome. So you guys, uh, you're having a batch of a thousand units come out, I think this summer, uh, you know, let's talk about what's next for the, what can we expect this year and, and moving forward from Nailbot and Prima Donna? Yeah. I mean, we're like, I'm ecstatic. I feel like we've been, you know, this is, I can't wait to kind of release this into the world, um, in a great way. And 
yeah, I mean, I'd say right now we're heads down with tooling, we're heads down with production. Um, we're hyper-focused there. We're hyper-focused on some of the community grassroots work that's going on in stealth behind the scenes. Um, so yeah, you'll see a big year ahead of us um, and the next year as well. And we are hiring for a couple of roles. So, so go on our website um, and, and check it out if you're, you're interested in kind of joining our journey. But yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty pumped about the future and yeah, starting with Nail and then, you know, I hope you get to see other products that we're, we're capable of executing and building on in the coming years as well. Absolutely. And what, what other kind of final advice do you have for, you know, entrepreneurs that are tuning in anyone who's maybe thinking about building a hardware business? Cause I think you might be the first hardware company we've had on the show and building any type of hardware company is, is enormously hard and challenging as you know. So what, what kind of advice do you have? Yeah, I've got a couple of pieces, right? So the first is when it comes to fundraising and trying to like fundraise for a not, um, you know, cause we have hardware, software, consumables and community, <laughs> you know, we've got, we've got it all, but we, hardware is really that moat. Um, I would say just start, start small, right? Get, get something going, hack a prototype. There's nothing more powerful than a show and tell. <laughs> yeah. Um, frankly. So I'd say that's kind of the first thing. The second thing is like, I can't stress it enough is to really believe in yourself. Even when no one else does, there is imposter syndrome is real. I've had it. I still have it. I've probably had it on this call, frankly. Um, And I think it just requires you to really, really dig deep and figure out like, why am I still doing this? Who am I on this journey? And like, it's your mental mindset. Like, I think you get the rejection, deal with it. Tomorrow's a new day and don't be bitter about it. Um, and I think the third kind of piece or the fourth piece is we've definitely had product delays. Like Lee, like, come on, I've been, I've been at this a while, right? Right. Underestimated, all the time. <laughs> yeah. I've underestimated the amount of capital it was going to take. Um, you know, I've overestimated our timelines. It's, it's, it's been challenging. I'm a first-time entrepreneur in that way. And, you know, just stay positive, learn from your mistakes, keep going. You know, and I say this a lot, when you have time, you oftentimes don't have money. And when you have money, you don't have time. So focus on the positive area there, right? Um, and a year is actually not that long. <laughs> I know everyone's like, oh, you know, in the world of hardware, it really isn't. And when you're trying to build something that's kind of never been done before and you're waiting for the market, to kind of really be like primed for it mm-hmm. um, because here we are today. And like, you know, in the last 52, in the last weeks of 2020, the nail category had an 18% sales spike and nail is one of the fastest growing categories in the mass market beauty category, which is amazing, right? We're, we're right. We're right there. You know, we're catching all of these, um, all of this demand. And I think Nailbot is really, really primed for the market right now. Um, but yeah, so I would say, kind of want to put a tangent, but believe in yourself. Um, don't worry about imposter syndrome. Product timelines can be de- debilitating, but really focus on the positive and keep going. And then on the pitching side, also maybe try some unconventional things. I did all those nail parties, but I also did a ton of pitch contests. Like I, I actually met people from the pitch contest. I, how I met Jesse Draper was I went on meet the Drapers, her TV show where I pitched her, her dad and her grandfather, both her and her dad invested. Um, nice. I, yeah, I did this MIT solve challenge and I got connected to a few angel investors. Um, and then we actually went just straight up cash at other pitch contests. So, you know, those $5,000 checks, you know, can pay for your rent. Um, so Think untraditionally also about the way that you get capital. Can you run a crowdfunding campaign? If you can't run a crowdfunding campaign, you know, what what else can you sell or can you moonlight somewhere else to kind of get some cash in the door? Yeah. And really put yourself out there, which is what you've been doing nonstop. You know, you're like campaigning all the time. Yeah. But you know what? It's kind of one of these things where there's, there's going to be this moment and it's, you know, everyone's say, oh, how did this happen? And it's, you and I both know, well, it was years of kind of, you know, the, the foundation work was there. But then when the, right. I think one thing that, so not on, for all those hardware founders out there, if you, once that device takes off with one skew, you can generate millions of dollars in revenue. 
right? So it can be very, very powerful. Um, you're, I think with that product market fit with, with software, you know, yeah, you can get to a million dollars maybe a little bit faster given the product development timeline, but that hockey stick growth can happen very, very quickly with connected hardware. Um, so that's what I'm looking forward to seeing. That's awesome. Yeah, you're right. I think hardware is a really interesting, a very a fun space. Um, very hard to get into unless you can, you know, create a prototype yourself in your kitchen, which I think most people can't do. Um, and yet, like you said, very capital intensive as well. Um, so kudos to you for getting as far as you have and all of your grit, believing in yourself and putting yourself out there so many times to thousands of investors. Um, congratulations on all of your success. I'm excited to see how things keep progressing. Thanks, Lee. And thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, if I can help with any of your efforts, let me know. Okay. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.